Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcasts on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we are talking about the new and third edition of ECFR's groundbreaking Coalition Explorer which also, in a very special edition, included some extra questions about the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on European politics and policymaking. I'm very happy to welcome Ulrike Franke and Pavel Tserka, two policy fellows at ECFR, who've worked on this year's Coalition Explorer. Thank you both very much for joining from your holidays. Why don't we start with a a basic question for those of diminishing bunch of unenlightened people who had not come across the first two editions of the Coalition Explorer. Pavel, what, what is it and why is it useful? I guess that after the latest uh, European summit, we'll all agree that coalitions of countries are crucial for moving things forward in the European Union. And this has been always an an assumption behind the project that we have done in ECFR since 2016. This is already our third edition of the Coalition Explorer. This is a project supported by Stiftung Mercator. And it is unique because we ask a set of questions, not to the general public, but to policy professionals across uh, European Union. And by policy professionals, I mean government officials, think tankers, academia, media, etc. And we make sure that there is a variety of voices from each of the 27 member states. And this year, we managed to get a record total of over 800 respondents who answered at least part of the survey and almost 700 who responded to all of the questions. And speaking about the questions, these are For example, which other member states do they see as most influential on European policy, most responsive or most disappointing? We ask uh, what are their country's uh, priorities and um, with which countries their own capital tends to work uh, the most on those issues. And finally, we ask about the different policy areas and uh, whether from the perspective of their national governments, those should be tackled on the European or rather national level or something in between. And an important thing to, to stress is that the survey that we did for, for this year's edition was conducted just at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, which means we run the survey in March and April. And since after that, we have seen crucial developments in European politics, we decided to make an additional survey, Corona Special, which was conducted in May and focused exclusively on cooperation during the COVID crisis, with also almost 700 uh, respondents who answered to all of the questions. Fantastic. So I suppose the most obvious first question is, what did you find? So we found so many things. Quite honestly, it's always tricky to write anything on the basis of the Coalition Explorer because there are always so many, you know, smaller and bigger insights uh, that you would love to kind of promote but can't necessarily in in one paper. But maybe to give you some idea of, of the things we found. So personally, I specifically looked at how Germany is seen in Europe and then how France is seen in Europe. And um, together with Jana Pugliari and a colleague in, in Berlin, we wrote a paper on exactly that. So to give you a run through of these results, well, maybe unsurprisingly, but it's still interesting to actually have this black on white, Germany remains the EU's kind of center of gravity or beauty queen, if you want. 97% of respondents, so pretty much everyone, said that Germany is the most influential country in Europe. 
Germany is also the most contacted country, so contacted by pretty much all the other member states. And it is considered the most responsive and easiest to work with by the member states. So basically on all these major questions, Germany always came out first. But not everybody found Germany as interesting. I, I think that the French view of Germany was a bit more complicated because 20 out of 36 French respondents saw Germany as one of the top five most disappointing countries. Yeah, exactly. So that's basically the other side of the coin. Um, everyone agrees that Germany is, is really important and that they are doing like a reasonably good job and, and communicating with everybody and, and holding the EU together. But as you say, um, quite a lot of countries are pretty disappointed with Germany too. And it's not just France, although France may be particularly interesting, but also, you know, countries such as Greece, maybe unsurprisingly, but Greece put uh, Germany very high up in terms of how disappointed it is with the country. And indeed, I, I took a special interest in the Franco-German relationship. And, and this was very interesting because you can really see how important both France and Germany are for Europe and the EU. So I just said Germany always comes out first, while France always comes out second. So on all these questions, again, most influential, most responsive, etc., you always have France second, sometimes very close to Germany, sometimes a bit further apart. But it is very clear that France under Macron is the kind of number two in, in the EU. And then also, interestingly, there basically is no number three. Often it's the Netherlands that comes out third, but it's it's pretty far behind. So it's very much these, these two, which means a number of things. I mean, first, it means that France and Germany really need to work together in order to achieve anything and that they can block each other. If, you know, one wants to go right and the other goes left, nothing is gonna, is gonna happen. But the Franco-German Franco relationship isn't doing too well according to to our survey there is a lot of disappointment especially on the french side which is most likely due to the kind of slow response from germany to all these french uh, proposals macron's proposals to reform the eu and however i mean as as pavel just said the poll was done in March and April. Um, and since then, of course, we had this big announcement and this big plan of the recovery plan for the EU. So so I would say that since we did the poll, Franco-German relations have actually improved. I just wanted to add that uh, we could treat the COVID crisis and the negotiations on the recovery fund as a case study of what we have seen in the Coalition Explorer. And this was one of the main goals of, of this Corona special, which we conducted in May. And there we could see that the German leadership is even more visible than our earlier survey demonstrated. So Germany was basically seen as an undisputed leader during the crisis. And this was interesting to us uh, because this happened despite the shaky start uh, of, of Germany, which we, if I'm sure some people remember, together with France, blocked uh, the exports of medical equipment uh, to, to Italy at the very start of the pandemic. And nevertheless, Germany was still seen as the leader. Actually, apart from Greece and Malta, at least half of respondents from every member state said that Germany has demonstrated the most leadership in the EU's handling uh, of the crisis. And Germany was also seen as the most helpful on issues of public health and on issues of economic recovery and was hardly ever seen or as disappointing on either of those issues. And interestingly, most of the answers were collected 
elected before this historical announcement by Merkel and Macron. So we could uh, imagine that if we uh, conducted it in June, then uh, the perception of Germany and France would be even better. And uh, the same could happen if we conducted this survey right now, because apart from the Merkel's and Macron's initiative, we have actually seen that that uh, initiative could uh, get to, to an agreement among all of the EU27. Why don't we pivot from Germany's special role to the Macron effect? Ulrika, you said you looked a lot at the French and German responses. What did you learn about France? So as I said earlier, France really comes out as the number two in, in pretty much all of the results. Um, it's the second most influential country, the second most contacted, the second on everything, really. And in some of these measures, it's actually really close to, to Germany. So I think it's, you know, 97% say Germany is, is the most influential country, but and you could choose several countries, um, 93% say France is really important, too. So I think that's important to note. Uh, what I found very fascinating when it comes to France is how differently France is seen by different European countries or rather European regions, um, because it really is pretty clear that France has an Eastern Europe problem. I don't think that's something that's completely new. Uh, and in fact, Macron has tried to reach out to, to Eastern Europe a bit. But when you look at, you know, who is the most disappointed by France, it's the, the first five or seven countries are Eastern Europeans. When you look at who contacts France the least, it's all it's all the Eastern Europeans. So it's, it's very clear that France isn't seen by Eastern Europe as, I don't know, a reliable partner or an important partner or, yeah, so there are definitely issues and, and Eastern Europe is looking more towards Germany than towards France. So Pavel, is there Eastern European living in France? Were you surprised by this? Not at all, because apart from the perception of whether Paris is helpful or not, uh, there are, of course, substantial differences in policy positions on Russia to defense and the role of NATO or uh, European defense integration and several other issues. Uh, so it was not a surprise to me that that uh, France and, and the East are so much detached, but it's surely an impediment for Paris if, if it wants to play a really leadership role next to Germany in the in the European Union, rather than being just a single player with, with a lot of power or a representative and the advocate of the South. And this is a problem also for the so-called Weimar Triangle, which has traditionally been a, a form of cooperation between Germany, France and Poland, because it turns out that this triangle actually has only sides and the third side is, is more, almost missing. I think Pavel made a really important point here because I think Macron definitely would like to take on a bigger leadership within the EU and would like France to take on this bigger leadership. And Macron certainly has lots of ideas, but leadership isn't just having lots of ideas, but also having people follow you. From what we've seen from the survey results, that's not necessarily uh, the case. So just a few examples. So Pavel mentioned defense. Uh, and here I thought that the, the survey results were really interesting and actually pretty concerning. Defense comes as 14th out of 20 possible EU policy priority. So I would say that defense, you know, clearly isn't something that a lot of European countries put as an important EU policy priority uh, for, for the next few years. Um, I think there are only five countries that have defense in their top five. 
Um, and one of them is France. And France doesn't only have defense in their top five, but actually has it as its number one priority. And that's really striking because France is definitely the outlier here. So France is the only one to have common defense as number one priority. Um, I think there are, if I'm not mistaken, 17 countries that don't even have defense in their top 10. And importantly, Germany ranks defense as 14th. So very much in line with the EU27, but it's clearly not a, not a priority. And I think that's concerning because it, it may seem, I, I think there's a certain mission accomplished problem here that some Europeans and, and especially um, Berlin may think that so much has been done on European defense that we can now move on. But for me, this this really shows a, a discrepancy that all of the EU, but especially France and Germany, kind of need to work out in order to create a common European uh, defense. And maybe a, a similar discrepancy is also in terms of foreign policy uh, policy priorities and more domestic policy priorities. Because generalizing a bit, you can see that throughout the EU, th there is a bigger focus at the moment on domestic policy priorities rather than on the more geopolitical things. So when you look at China policy, policy towards the US, uh, towards Russia, defense, as I just mentioned, these rank pretty low for the EU 27, but they rank pretty highly for France. So in a way, yeah, French leadership is is hindered a bit by the fact that there isn't much agreement between France and most of the rest of the EU in terms of what the EU should focus on most. At the same time, and this is at the same time, which is significant because it's en même temps que Manuel Macron very much likes to, to use. So France has demonstrated during the COVID crisis how it can actually be useful, helpful, and how it can play a leadership role, despite its obvious handicaps, such as the, that of not having good connections to the East. So basically, Paris uh, has, has been successful in playing a role of a bridge and the main advocate of the South, or even we can say extended South, because this would include not just France, Italy, Spain and Portugal, but also Luxembourg, Belgium and Ireland, countries which, which have worked very closely with Paris during the crisis. And most of them, if not all of them, have been signatories of the letter of nine in the end of March, a letter that they sent to Charles Michel calling for the issuance of joint European debt. And also we, we've seen that uh, among those countries that there has been a very strong positive perception of Paris, Paris's role on the economic front and on the health front. And Emmanuel Macron managed to use this uh, network, those strong connections as a bargaining chip or as, as a good point for further negotiations among the EU27. And basically, we can, we can even claim that he reversed the previous logic because normally France would first approach Germany and only then if they agree on something, they would, they would try to push it at the European level or, or among the group of, of willing countries. Whereas in this case, actually France was uh, first coordinating its positions with other southern countries like Italy and, uh, and Spain. The fact that they had very similar experiences with the COVID crisis surely helped a lot because these are the countries which suffered the most in, in both uh, the, the health and the economic terms. But then the fact that they, they 
managed to get to an agreement of what should be the priority for European Union. And the, the fact that uh, Macron took that uh, priority and got back to Merkel to, to present it, uh, actually, that might be the reason why it actually worked. Of course, Germany played its crucial role uh, afterwards as well, because uh, Berlin detached itself from the north, playing a role of the European center and leaving uh, to, to the Netherlands the role of an ingrate uh, frugal. But still, it was it, it was a case showing that that actually Germany wouldn't uh, achieve a lot uh, on its own and that France can play a very positive and constructive role, despite the fact that it has a strong network only among some of the EU members. So I like to go into some depth on these other powers, the Frugals, particularly the Netherlands, and also the Visegrad countries that we haven't spoken about yet. But before we do that, can we just dwell a bit more on this idea of the geopolitical Europe? How much unity is there on the geopolitical questions? Did you find a Europe that could actually work together? I mean, Ulrika said that people don't care that much about defence and the priority of domestic policy, which seems not only legitimate, but very sensible in the middle of the COVID crisis, that that's nowhere near the top of anyone's agenda. But how much scope do you think there is to get around the divisions that we've had in terms of how to deal with China, with the US, with Russia, with other players that are increasingly making it difficult to both deal with the, the healthcare problem, but also the economic recovery, which uh, we're going to need to power through if we're going to get Europe back on track? Yeah, so I think... There's going to be some difficulty here because, I mean, don't forget at this point, we basically only asked, should these foreign policy topics be a priority for the EU? This isn't even about like which way should be should we be going, right? Um, and it, I found it quite striking, as I said, first of all, that these geopolitical topics aren't even high on, on the agenda, but also that there are quite you know, important divergencies in terms of for whom a topic is high, high on the agenda and for whom it isn't. So given that we already don't have that much agreement on whether or not there should be a, a common, let's say, EU-China policy, um, th th this, is, this is the first step, right? Agreeing to, to do something um, together and then you work out what exactly you should be doing. So I think, quite honestly, in terms of the EU 27 working together as one on these topics, we still have a have a pretty long way to go. Let me just add, because, you know, when you look at the, the Russia policy, for instance, there are so many countries within the EU that basically don't see Russia policy as an important EU policy area at all. And then there are a bunch of countries, of course, you know, the Eastern Europeans or some of the Eastern Europeans that consider Russia policy one of the most important priorities. So here you really see this kind of divergence of is this even important and is this something that should be done on the EU level or rather on other levels? One of the questions that we tackled in the Coalition Explorer is about the level of um, of decision-making that countries would prefer for a specific issue to be tackled. And uh, it may not be surprising that out of the areas that we tackled, 20 policy areas, it has been the defense which gathered the least positive answers for tackling it at the, the European level. But then when we look at specific policy areas, for example, policy towards the US, there are plenty of countries who are reluctant to accept that there should be a, an all EU or, or a subgroup of EU member states cooperating on, on such a policy. And the reluctance is strongest in countries like 
Poland, uh, which obviously has the strongest links to, uh, to the current uh, American administration and uh, has long uh, positioned itself as, as, as a transatlantic player with strong links to the US, but also Hungary or uh, Greece or even Estonia and Romania, another NATO country. These are countries where, where among the respondents in our survey, the, there is some re reluctance to accepting that the policy towards the US should be tackled at, at more than just nas national level. Okay. That's very, very interesting. So should we spend the last few minutes talking about the rest of Europe, not just the Franco-German couple? But particularly interesting is what you found about the, the so-called Frugals and the Visegrad countries, which are two kind of powerful blocks that have emerged in uh, recent months on particularly some of these questions to do with the budget as well as rule of law. What did the survey show about the influence of these countries, whether that is different also from, from what we found in the first two surveys? Netherlands is a very interesting case because in the Coalition Explorer, we've seen that it has reaffirmed its position as a probable third player in, in the European policymaking and as such also a country which is seen as uh, punching most above its weight. So despite the fact that uh, Italy, Spain or, uh, or Poland are bigger countries and it, it's still the Netherlands which, which is seen as the third uh, player in terms of its influence, responsiveness, etc. But uh, then uh, when we move to this, to this additional survey which we did focusing exclusively on COVID crisis, it has also been the Netherlands that, that have disappointed the most. And obviously, they have a lot of this criticism is the result of the fact that the, the Netherlands took the leadership of the group of frugal countries, which also includes Austria, Denmark, Sweden, and to some respect, also Finland, although not officially part of the frugal four. This was interesting because on, on the one hand, in general terms, Netherlands is seen as such an important player, well-connected, good to work with. But then when it came to this particular crisis, it looked like the Hagues became the villain of the piece. And I understand this in, in the way that, uh, that actually a lot of disappointment was because there were also a lot of expectations vis-a-vis -vis the Netherlands. And I believe that there are lessons to be learned both for the Netherlands and for the rest of the countries as to how much they can expect from the Dutch. Although the final result of the negotiations actually should be understood as a demonstration that the Netherlands understood what the, the role of a possible number three is in, in European policymaking. And then when it comes to, to the Visegrad countries, for me, the most striking thing was that those countries, and especially Poland, were almost invisible during the COVID crisis based on the results of our survey, in the sense that they rarely ever they, they figured on the mental map of respondents from other countries. The, they were neither seen as positive or negative, most disappointing, most influential or the economic front or health recovery. Simply, they were. it seemed as if they were not there, as if the COVID crisis and the subsequent recovery fund were only the thing of the north and of the south. But obviously with the issue of the rule of law, which is still under negotiation and under discussion, those countries will be more mobilized in those negotiations. And at the same time, the, the whole story of COVID becomes much more the story of the East right now, now that the economic part of the package has been negotiated. Great. Well, we covered a lot of ground. I think your survey results seem to ring very true for me. And it's, it's interesting how much the balance of power seems to have shifted in recent years. 
it's interesting as well that um, you know the, the process of, of making the survey happen seems to have led to a new outbreak of Franco-German unity, which wasn't there when you started <laughs> doing the fieldwork. Well, well, that would be great because if I have one wish for next year's um, survey, I want to see a new number three rise. So I was really struck by the fact, so we were talking about the Netherlands, but I mean, Spain, Italy, Poland, I mean, you know, size-wise, they really should be a contender for the for the top three spot in, in Europe. And they aren't really, not according to our results. So um, if we have this kind of influence that you just... Uh, mentioned Mark, then then for next year, I I want the number three to to emerge within Europe and and take on more of the kind of EU policy agenda. Okay, well we got one more thing to do on this podcast, and that's our bookshelf segment. What's on your bookshelf at the moment, Pavel? I just came back from holiday. I'm now restarting the reading of Katrina's Forrester's book In the Shadow of Justice, which is about John Rawls' liberal egalitarianism and how it came to dominate liberal political philosophy in the past half century. But while I'm not reading this book, I'm also following closely the developments in in Belarus, which uh, I find somehow missing in the the media and which I think are crucial if, if we are serious about geopolitical Europe and Europe being serious about its neighborhood. Fantastic. We'll definitely come back to Belarus, maybe even get you back to talk about it on a podcast, Pavel, along with some of your colleagues from the Wider Europe programme. Ulrike, you've also been on holiday for a while. What what was on your bookshelf or in your backpack as you were travelling across Europe? Yeah, so I have to say that Pavel is just a way more serious person than I am (laughs) because I'm more into escapism these days. So my recommendation is, as usual, science fiction, and I'm recommending Blake Crouch's Recursion, which is an absolutely fantastic kind of time travel um there's a geopolitical element in there as well novel and yeah highly recommended definitely one of those books that draws you in and there's a certain danger that you're trying to to read it in one go but that's great holiday reading i guess or something for the beach uh, recursion by blake crouch great and i have a sort of two-part recommendation On the serious front, I've just started, I'm very late to the party, but reading Neil Ferguson's magisterial biography of Henry Kissinger, Kissinger, 1923 to 1968, The Idealist, which is really, really fascinating. And for more kind of beachy moods, I have also been sort of slightly late to the party, but the British lockdown was dominated completely televisionally by a 10-part series aimed at young adults set in Ireland called Normal People, written by a young Irish novelist called Sally Rooney. And I very much recommend both Normal People and her first book, which is called Conversations with Friends. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure that you let all of your friends and acquaintances know about it by writing about it on your social media page or on ours, but above all, by heading to whatever platform you've used to download the podcast and giving us a positive review and preferably a five-star rating. We will put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, including to the famous Coalition Explorer, which is great to listen about on the podcast, but even more fun to play about on our website. Hope you're enjoying your holidays and with great warm greetings from Ulrika Franke, Pavel Zerka and myself, Mark Leonard. It's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Marlene Riedel. Mm-hmm.